This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Reality was starting to set in, and I seriously was wondering if I would never get to see anything ever again. Becky Zarr shares her personal experiences as a healthcare provider and young mom with total vision loss. I remember saying to her, Mom, I'm not strong enough. I had hit my rock bottom. My mom replied back to me, You can do this because you have a little boy who needs you. The Blind Reality. New episodes every second Tuesday of the month. Download this AMI podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. Why is it so hard for academics of color to pursue their dream projects? Black scholars tell of unfiltered workplace hostility and racism, and how that racism limits academic research and their own social advancement. Norma Wick reads Black in the Ivory Tower, by Hadia Roderick. Hadia Roderick is a writer, consultant, speaker, and recently minted PhD living in Toronto. I'm Norma Wick. This is an article titled Black in the Ivory Tower by Hadia Roderick from the November December issue of The Walrus. In early June, hashtag Black in the Ivory went viral on Twitter. Created by Charday M. Davis, an assistant professor at the University of Connecticut, and Joy Melody Woods, a doctoral student at the University of Texas at Austin, the hashtag asked black scholars to share their experience with higher ed institutions. Academics responded in droves, detailing the myriad ways that black scholars, scholarship, and excellence have been undermined and undervalued. One person described a colleague remarking that blacks have lower IQs than whites. Another reported being told that they were not really black because they are good. Scholars were told that they were just diversity hires. One black woman received a student evaluation alleging she had committed malpractice by presenting race as central to American history and saying she should never teach again. That hashtag led to others within the academic community like hashtag strike for black lives and hashtag shut down STEM, efforts in which non-black scholars were asked to pause their day-to-day work to reflect on ways of addressing anti-black racism in their fields. These conversations were part of the larger reckoning with systemic racism prompted by George Floyd's murder, a movement that has included protests and calls for widespread change in various industries, including policing, publishing, and news media. The responses to Davis and Woods' call tell startling tales of unfiltered workplace hostility and racism. But, to me, they are unsurprising. They are the reality of so many professions and institutions. I have told versions of this story myself. I went to graduate school in large part because of my isolating experiences as a black woman lawyer on Bay Street. In 2012, I was the only one at my firm, Faskin, which is currently the second largest in the country. To my knowledge, many firms had none. I wanted to understand why, even in the 21st century, statistics like this persisted, and I thought academia would offer me answers. 
I enrolled in a Ph.D. program at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management in the field of organizational behavior and human resource management. What I did not expect to find was an environment with even fewer black faces. For much of my time as a Ph.D. student, I was the only black academic in my entire program. Like many other professional fields, academia does not reflect the diversity of our country. And, for a black academic, this can lead to a pervasive sense of being out of place. When Madian Andrade, a professor of ecology, vice dean, and Canada Research Chair at the University of Toronto, visited Cornell University for her Ph.D. interview in the mid-90s, she knew she'd be the only black person in the room. Andrade recalls constant stress over the feeling that you always stand out, no matter what. Alyssa Trotz, a professor of Caribbean Studies and the director of Women and Gender Studies at the University of Toronto, recounts a time at graduate school when she similarly felt like she stood out. During a class in the early 90s, a leading lecturer used the N-word in reference to an example. My immediate response was shame. I still don't know how to make sense of that, she says. I was this incandescent light in the room, and I wanted to shut it off. Stories like this aren't hard to find. They've been logged in investigations into the experiences of people of color and indigenous faculty members, in diversity and equity reports, in scholars having their work ignored or co-opted or silenced. I recently participated in a black graduate student town hall, which asked its 70-plus attendees if we had ever observed or experienced racism, aggression, or bias at the university. The numbers were stark. 18% had observed them, 17% had experienced them, and the remaining 65% reported some combination of the two. In 2020, it shouldn't take the momentum of a police killing and mass protests to prompt a genuine reckoning with anti-blackness in academia and other industries. We just have to look at who has a place in the ivory tower and who does not. In a 1975 talk at Portland State University, Toni Morrison identified distraction as the very serious function of racism. According to Morrison, racism keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. She gives a series of examples. Somebody says you have no language, and so you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is, to show the extra layer of labor put on black thinkers to constantly prove the value of their work. Her words still ring true, especially for academia. Before starting my Ph.D., I expected my school, my department, and the conferences I attended to be overwhelmingly white. But I was surprised to find that this reality also affected my studies. I had entered higher education to explore questions around representation, but I found the subject of race hard to pursue. During that same town hall, when asked if racism, aggression, or bias had caused them to rethink or change their programs, classes, or career plans, 70% of participants answered yes. I was one of them. I had a project I wanted to take on, a series of four studies that would examine whether black women suffered the same penalties as white women for asserting themselves in the workplace. Things like 
speaking up, seeking power, and exhibiting dominance. Based on various stereotypes of black femininity, I hypothesized a pattern of results that black women would be allowed to speak up and show dominance, but would be punished for seeking power. I had done the research and secured the funding, but I was worried that, if I studied race, it would hurt me when I went on the job market. I would be pigeonholed as a black person who studied black people and therefore assumed to be too personally invested. Ultimately, I abandoned the work in favor of a study on parenthood and gender, a subject that seemed more marketable and objective, especially when investigated by a childless person. I'm not the only academic to have felt the pressure to keep race out of my research. In a 2003 Queen's University report on faculty of color and indigenous faculty, one staff member described how, when they had joined the university, they had been cautioned by a colleague about not publishing too much in the areas of racism and anti-racism. This warning conveyed a distinct message, that race is not a legitimate field of research, and that it would not be taken seriously in terms of future promotion and tenure decisions, and was similar to the fear that rattled around in my own brain. But I still felt like there was no one in the entire business school I could talk to about it. Trotz's experience as a young academic researching the Caribbean were similar. We were asking questions about places that are not seen as important. There is an additional set of work just to say it even matters. She describes this extra labor as time spent to clear the space before getting to work at all, the very distraction that Morrison spoke of. During a faculty meeting to talk about racism, Andrade asked the same poll questions about changing one's academic focus. The departmental results, from a much whiter group, were far lower than those from the town hall. Seeing that 70% of town hall participants had changed their classes or career plans or their majors because of racism, she says of her department, it kind of struck them dumb. There were many times even well into the writing of my dissertation, that I wanted to quit my project and go back to my original idea. But sunk costs prevailed. I chose not to pursue an academic job after graduating, but I sometimes wonder if I might have been keener on it if I'd focused on the work I truly cared about. The original idea had thrilled me in a way that my eventual dissertation didn't. I wanted to know more about what it meant to be a black woman seeking power in the workplace. I still do. Would the results have inspired me to pursue further research and teaching? The decision to move away from that project is, and always will be, the biggest regret of my academic career. A recent study on the link between diversity and innovation found that scientists from underrepresented groups can produce work at a higher rate of novelty, measured by the number of new links generated between existing ideas. What often happens, though, is that their novel contributions are devalued and discounted and are less likely to garner them academic positions and successful careers. As a result, they leave the field before the fruits of their creativity and labor can be realized. This is the kind of excellence we are failing to reward and the kind we repeatedly lose. We need to remove the barriers to entry along the academic chain. It's not just hiring practices— it's eradicating the bias against fields of study seen as less legitimate, like work that centers the experiences of racialized people.
It's making sure that academics from underrepresented groups have the support they need to pursue their projects and, moreover, that they are not forced to constantly prove their work's value. Sidelining the work of Black and Indigenous academics does more than limit academic research and social advancement. I asked Trotz what she thinks we lose when only a narrow subset of ideas and topics are seen as worthy, or when we ask questions about only particular segments of our society. Her answer is simple and immediate. Everything. That was an article titled Black in the Ivory Tower by Hadia Rodrigue from the November-December issue of The Walrus. I'm Norma Wick. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson, audio engineering by Sam Robinson and Bill Shackleton. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Roger Ashby. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review, and subscribe for more. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.